1: Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. I am Christy. I'm here with Ben and Matt.
2: Yo, yo. Hey guys. Hello. Hi, Christy. And we
1: uh Yeah, I don't know. How are you guys doing? I feel like <laughs> I have, we have the three of us haven't been together for a little bit. It's <laughs> been a while. Feels
3: like it. Mm, yeah. Mm, how I'm am doing I okay. doing? How am I doing? Yeah. I think I'm, I'm already. Could share Skywalker. <laughs>
1: I could I Our li- our listeners don't know, but like when we g- we jump on, we always put like a name. Yeah. And ben is you're pretty normally Ben, Ben' yeah. sturky. you've got uh-huh. you you're like mm-hmm. just my mm-hmm. I just have my initials today, but you have determined Skywalker. Yep,
2: I think that was probably a default name, I think the software gives you a default.
3: I name. just decided to let the software give me a default name, and I like it. I may get a neck yeah. tattoo of it
2: <laughs> i uh I could uh, regale you with a long um tale of the woes of trying to figure out what's worse. Uh, my seasonal allergies or the side effects of my seasonal allergy medicine. Mm. And oh. I, the, the uh, it's up in the air right now. I am I so no idea.
1: sorry. So. Boop, boop. I am anyway. sorry.
3: Um, <clears throat> anyway, can I answer your question honestly? Yeah, how, please I'm, do- do. how I'm doing? I am yeah. b- beyond excited because I uh, am smoking two pork butts this weekend and I seasoned them last night and they will be on the grill tonight. And when I'm in this like fifty-eight hour window of like prepping and getting ready, I can't really. I'm a I'm a kid. I just talk about it. I can't. I'm a little. I'm a little child so, who is going on vacation to well, a candy store.
2: Can you answer me this question then, Matt? Is pork butt the same thing as pork shoulder? Yes. And if so, why? <laughs> it's called because my butt is not the same thing as my shoulder. No.
3: And no. I don't think a cow's
2: or a pig's butt is necessarily the same thing as nope. a pig's Oh my shoulder. gosh,
1: you all, this is why you needed a woman on this thing. Because like <laughs> some is... listeners are like, Stop, just Welcome stop. To we don't butt need <laughs>
2: chat. Okay, all right.
3: <laughs> uh no, it's called so this cut of meat, thanks for asking, Ben. Uh mm-hmm. this cut of meat is called the Boston butt or okay. a pork shoulder or a pork butt. And it's actually the part of the every time we say butt, Christy's Christy's <laughs> left. I don't, Christy. Christine, I don't know if we needed <laughs> we needed you to oh increase word. the junior high humor. It's just it's a cut of meat. This isn't okay. like a butt joke. I'm not. This aren't Christian. These aren't Christian swears. So yeah, um, think of butt in just quote in in scare quotes because yeah. it's not really a butt. It's right? not really a butt. No, it's it's a it's okay. a shoulder. It's like under the shoulder of the of the hog, um, and like most meats you barbecue, like brisket and ribs, it's an act- It's actually one of the worst cuts of meat. Because of how fatty it is and how much collagen is in it. And so the only way to eat it is to cook it low and slow, as I call it, you know, like uh, not to cook it super hot and to cook it for like, I gotta cook it for like 14 hours overnight. Um, And like poor people, and in particular, poor people of color uh, used to buy this really cheap meat and they, Mm -hmm. and they knew, they figured out how to cook it. And so like poor people of color made uh, throwaway cuts of meat couple hundred years ago into delicacies and now you know people drive I mean, everybody loves barbecue now people drive you know hours yeah. and hours and hours to go to like the world's best barbecue joint and we it, owe it to poor people of color
1: it is delicious i'm not gonna lie but i'm not like patient enough nor do i really like oh, to cook enough yeah i cook only because i have five kids and they have to eat <laughs>
3: yeah do you not see keep people show up if you don't feed them
1: yeah <laughs> i just yeah yeah. So, well, it, well, I hope it tastes delicious. I'm sure it will.
3: I'm cooking it for my, my sisters are coming over on Saturday. Uh, all of us are vaccinated. So we're going to, we're going to party like it's 2019. And <laughs> <laughs> remember remember that? Remember that? And it's a mother's day this weekend. And uh, when you're a pastor, uh, uh, it's hard to like pull things together from uh, on mother's day, drive a long ways. And I knew I couldn't, I couldn't like leave my precious meat babies for like five hours on Sunday. And come back and they'd be like all dried out and hard, and, you know, unappealing. I
1: was yeah. really hoping you'd just stop talking about it because I could like transition to, a, like, what to our I, actual podcast. But like, no, we, there's no good transition talking about pork butt and then...
3: And
2: meat babies. Speak, and
1: meat babies. Speaking
3: of delicacies... Uh, we have Dr. Nathan Cartagena
2: on the Cartan podcast.
1: <laughs> oh, we do. Part 2. Part 2 with Dr. Part Nathan. Part 2
2: of our of our four part. This is a four part series on critical race theory.
3: Y'all, it was supposed to be it was supposed to be one podcast and and Nathan, we just couldn't like I I, just, I didn't want to cut him off because he was spitting fire. And it was like amazing and I was like, "Well, this is just going to be a 14-part series, and it, we actually <laughs> edited we it down to four. But no, yeah. and Nathan is is amazing, and yeah. you legit, this should be like a, a seminar, a TED Talk. On, um, yeah,
2: yeah. It's we great. May, and who knows? Maybe we'll release it uh, in that form at some point, not like a TED Talk, but like some way that you can sort of digest the whole thing. Yeah. But it's... um So if you didn't listen to last week, uh, you should go back and listen to last week. Last week was the introduction to what is critical race theory, which is a salient question because most of the people that I see anyway, talking about it online, actually don't know what it is. Uh, It's it's actually fairly uh, difficult to get your head around. So it takes a whole podcast episode to even understand what it is. And then this is the first part of uh, the next two parts of this series are going to be uh, Nathan is talking about um, kind of a brief history of white supremacy in the United States, mm-hmm. um, just sort of and using original sources. He's quoting, you know, like the the um, the founding fathers. He's quoting uh, people even before that. Uh, it's, it is. It's it's like a masterclass on uh, how our how our country was established and under what auspices.
1: He's super hint, knowledgeable. They're racist. They're racist. Yes. Rospices.
2: Anyway, yes. can, can we call those Rospices? Rosp- race, raspices? Rasp Anyway. Okay. Sorry, Christy. Yeah. No, they're, you're they're, good so Here you're we, good. we go. Yeah, we're doing this. Okay.
1: Yeah, let's yeah. we got to dive. In. Although I do want to plug, we are I am starting a new cohort. You are. Yeah. And, a new
2: gravity leadership cohort.
1: Yes, and it's going to be in the evening in case somebody's looking yeah. at, for that yeah. in particular. Uh-huh. Lee and um, yeah. yeah, if you are still interested, I would love for you to join. Uh, we may have one or two spots open still. So Yeah,
2: yeah, we'll see. Uh, obviously, uh, Matt, talking about Mother's Day weekend, we are recording this before this podcast yes. will release. But if this you are true. interested in getting into Christy's evening cohort, evening in the United States at any rate, um, yeah, to email us at podcast at and we will connect you with oh, Christy and Gino, who's our community liaison, liaison mm-hmm. and or put you on the waiting list for the next one.
1: All right. I would love it. All right, Sounds
2: well, let's
3: good. dive in. Here we well. go. So, I, w- I want to make the best use of our time, Nathan, because the days are evil. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, and so. They are. <laughs> Yes. There's people out there strategizing. So yeah, yes. there's people out there cynically. There. <laughs> so um, critical race theory, uh, as a sociological tool, threatens something. Yuck. It's a threat, which is why it's been demonized. Um, in order to name what it th- what it's what what it threatens, uh, we had conversations offline about how we need to back up and talk about how the thing that it threatens was constructed. So, um, would you, maybe we'll begin on this episode and maybe have to wrap up in the next episode, but will you you take us back a few hundred years? Yes. (laughs) And help us (laughs) understand what does CRT threaten and how was that created?
4: Yeah. So again, remember that the legal movement is aimed at understanding how law has fostered and perpetuated racism and white supremacy. And I want to stress this. Critical race theorists are going to say you can't decouple, conceptually decouple racism from from white supremacy because white supremacy serves as the foundation for racism. Now, for some people, this is going to sound shocking. So I want, to, I want to say this. One of the things you've heard now in our podcast conversation is the problem of organized forgetting. So a lot of people just, we don't know much about the broader history. We don't know much about U.S. history. We don't know much about, say, the global church's history, et cetera. And this reminds me of a very important quotation from uh, a Christian brother, George Erasmus, who's of the, of the Dene people of Canada. He says the following, where common memory is lacking, where people do not share the same past, there can be no real community. Where community is to be formed, common memory must be created. So what I'd like to do mm-hmm. is try to help us to have a common memory before we launch into more uh, fine-grained reflections on CRT. So what yes. I'm going to be doing now is taking us all the way back to 1444. We're going to be on one of my uh, one of my family's, uh, uh, I, well, peninsulas, Iberian Peninsula. So from my dad's side of the family, we have family members from, from Spain and from Portugal. So we're going to go to Portugal. 1444. Here's why this is going to be so important. What I'm going to read is an excerpt from the very first ever racialized slave auction. So the Portuguese are looking for ways to expand their empire while, in part, crusading against Muslims, especially in Northwest Africa. And this part about the crusade is very important because a lot of the crusading rhetoric that's weaponized against Muslims. Uh, Is going to come into play, you'll see, in in, what ends up being the construction of the Americas. But here's something I want to make sure that we see. So, when we're talking about white supremacy, we're going to talk about the following it's the idea that whatever gets deemed as white, and that changes throughout history, is seen as superior. And then everything else is going to be seen as non white, and it will fall on a graded scale of being less than white, but well, it might be more superior than this. And typically, what is deemed black. And this changes too, is at the bottom. So let me read you an excerpt that shows you the racial scale that's connected to white supremacy. Again, this is going all the way back to 1444. I'm reading from a Portuguese chronicle, chronicler. His name is Azuara. And he's going to give us a recording of the very first racialized slave auction. So Portuguese uh, soldiers have gone down into North and West Africa. They have captured people. They're saying that they've captured them in just warfare. So now they're supposed to be their slaves and they're soon going to be a, a selling of these slaves. And so it reads as follows. On the next day, which was the 8th of the month of August, very early in the morning, by reason of the heat, the seamen began to make ready their boats and to take out the cap- those captives. Remember, they're seeing them as uh, slaves from a just war and carry them on shore as they were commanded. And, at, uh, and these placed all together in that field were a marvelous sight. So all the slaves. For amongst them were some white enough fair to look upon, and well-proportioned. So whiteness is being connected to what is beautiful, what is attractive. From, then others were less white, like mulattoes, which is often a category for somebody that's, you might think, half white, half black. No, no real explanation about the mulattoes. Well, less white. You see that? So mm-hmm. white's still on top, and it's less white. And then others, again, were as black as Ethiopes. And notice what follows. And so, this means it's a logical connection. Ugly, both in features and in body, as almost to appear to those who saw them, the images of a lower hemisphere. What Izuwata is actually talking about, given the cosmology he's operating is, it's like these people have hellish flesh. Mm. And the Ethiopes, you know, it's a Greek word for burnt burnt skin. So the the idea is like, yeah, these people, it's like they have hellish flesh. So white is attractive, beautiful, it's fair to look upon. Mulattoes are less white and then there's the blacks Ooh, that's nasty now this idea about the racial scale is going to be so important because from Iberia Spain and Portugal you're going to get the spreading of global missions and you're going to get what ends up being the colonizing of what we might now think about as the west and all of that's going to be endorsed by multiple popes from Pope Nicholas V in 1452, for example, going all the way to Pope Alexander in, uh, in, ni- in 1493. Now, I, w- I want to say a little bit more to help people understand how radical European colonialism is.
2: Mm.
4: So, remember, part of what's going on is crusading. Um, and in fact, if I can read you this quotation, this is from Pope Nicholas in 1452. He says, uh, as he's thinking about what the Portuguese are doing, he, so he's going to grant the Portuguese king, Afonso V, the the right to invade, I'm now quoting directly, invade, seek out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Muslims and pagans whatsoever. This point about pagans is very important because of how it's going to get linked into the indigenous. And other enemies of Christ, wheresoever placed, wherever they are, and kingdoms, dukedoms, principalities, dominions, possessions, and all movable and immovable goods whatsoever held and possessed by them, and to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery see how the slave trade mm-hmm. is starting to get cooked up, mm-hmm. or the racialized slave trade? And this is, again, connected to the church. This is the pope. And you don't have the Reformation right now. You don't have the Protestant mm-hmm. Reformation. This is what everybody is, is hearing this. Now, of course, you do have Orthodox versus what we now think about as Roman Catholic divisal, of course. That, mm-hmm. you know, that's going back way before that. But But notice, those are going to see themselves as part of the Western church. This is what the vicar of Christ is telling you. So, reduce their person's to perpetual slavery, and to apply and to appropriate to himself and his successors the kingdoms, dukedoms, countries, principalities, dominions, possessions, and goods, and to convert them to, uh, to his and their use and profit. Use and profit. <laughs> now, remember I said the idea about the Pope as the vicar of Christ? Part of what we have to see is not only are people going to say, well, Jesus, he tabs the thought is as Peter as, as his successor, but he says, oh, you have the kingdoms. You have the keys to the kingdom. And whatever you bind and loose on heaven, it's going to be bound and loose. Uh, on earth, it's going to be bound and loose in heaven. So notice, in another papal bull that's going to be important for the doctrine of discovering, we're going to get there in just a minute. This was coming from 1455. We read the following. The Roman pontiff, successor of the key bearer of the heavenly kingdom and vicar of Christ. And what this is going to go on to do, this is Romanus uh, uh, potifix, pot is going to say, okay, yep, what we should be doing is following what we're seeing coming out of Iberia. That's what Christian kings should be doing. Uh, Calls them Catholic kings. Now, there's going to be, therefore, a papal support for imperial expansion under the name of Christ. And here's what we have to see. This is happening in what's known politically as a feudal system. So the idea is, is, is God is complete sovereign, has all the power, all the authority. And you think about the end of Matthew. Jesus says, all authority in heaven has been given to me. Well, then the thought is, well, all authority has been given to Jesus, but then Jesus, vicar, is the pope. So all that sort of authority goes to the pope. Now, not everybody endorses this view. Some are like, no, no, we don't think the pope has all that, that power, but many people do. So the pope then gets to empower those that are going to be kings and queens. The pope gives them power. And then those people can then empower folks that are going to be the landed gentry, you might say. And then they give rights and privileges to whomever they're going to give. So there's this direct chain in people's minds about how power and authority and distribution is going to work from God through the Pope to the to the the nation's monarchs or the Catholic kings and queens. And then to 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 other folks that are going to be a kind of aristocracy. And then you're going to get going to get forms of servitude that will come. But here's what's also happening: These people have no idea that mi familia, the Tainos exist. Because at this time, if you look for a map of the world, you're going to find what's called the TNO map. So it's the letter T, the letter N, the letter O map. And you get three continents. <laughs> you get Europe, Asia, Africa. Mm. That's it. So in 1492, when Columbus is trying to make his way to the India, he's, um, he's trying to get to India. He wants to get all the spices and, and, and all the silk trade stuff that's going on. When he encounters... Notice I say encounters, not discovers. When he encounters me, gente, it's like, well, I guess I found the Indians, but this isn't what I was expecting. Hmm. So notice, now the Christian, and this is so important because some people want to use no ideas about Christian worldview as if it's just this one monolithic thing. Most of us aren't thinking, if you're Protestants, for example, the power goes from God to the Pope to, to, the, to the kings and queens, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we're also not thinking, well, Christians thought that they were just these three continents. Yeah. For a long, 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 long time. Now you encounter all these other lands and peoples. And one of the questions people ask, are these folks related to Adam? Where did they come from? Because this is shocking. But remember that language about kings grabbing and subduing and putting people in perpetual slavery? Well, here's something that's very important to see. Once the TNO map gets busted and people are like, whoa, now we have all these other continents. It's important to see that the racial project is really now going to get thoroughly underway. So this is what scholars uh, Michael, o- uh, Michael Omi and Howard Weinett will call the racial formation process, the racial formation process. So that idea about whiteness and who's superior, that is something that every single European empire buys into and spreads. Now, they don't all have the same ideas about what counts as white. So for the Spanish to be white is to be Catholic. It's to be Spanish-speaking, it's to be coming from Spain, et cetera, et cetera, right? For for the British later, it's going to be well, no, it's to be it's to be British, it's to be light-skinned as they're seeing it, but it's to speak English. It's it, it's actually not to be Catholic, it's to be Protestant, et cetera, et cetera. Although these these different conceptions of whiteness are going to work out, but they're all thinking, you know white is supreme, and, and this is so important to see too. They're they're sending they're sending missionaries to places that they deem to be more white or not. So for example, some of the Jesuits they go to Japan rather than to india because they think that the japanese are part of the white race and the yes. indians and in the country of india are part of the black race so i tell my students the reason you have a book like Indo silence is because of white supremacy <laughs> being spread through missions works mm. but those same people that see themselves as white now they're going to encounter the indigenous peoples of what we would call today the um, the, the americas but turtle island and and the various uh, uh lands like like boricua so I want, to, I want to make sure I, I read this one line from, from Omi and, and Wynet. They, they stressed that European conquests of indigenous peoples, quote, was the first and given the dramatic nature, perhaps the greatest racial formation project. The first and perhaps the greatest racial formation project. So you're going to have Spaniards, the Portuguese seeing themselves as white coming into um, what we're now thinking about as the Western Hemisphere. And they're going to try to expand their empires, and they do it in what um, scholars, uh, the, the Iberian scholar C.R. Boxer calls as an effort to establish a pigmentocracy, hmm. a government that's supposed to be for and by those deemed white. So pigmentocracy, a government that's supposed to be for and by those deemed white. And again, the scholar C.R. Boxer. This gets connected to Pope Alexander the VI, um, important paper bowl that's known as the division of the—it's called— undiscovered world between Spain and Portugal. So this, you get this stuff, Spain, Portugal, you get this stuff. So you get multiple papal bulls that come together to form what's known as the doctrine of discovery. It goes like this. The the Pope is saying, as as the vigor of Christ, the power of Christ, I'm telling you all that if you land somewhere in these undiscovered worlds, which is again, it's just this is how Eurocentric it is because these people have been living there for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. But you find something where there have been no Christians before, then you can plant your flag, claim it for your kingdom, and then of course ultimately for the kingdom of God that I'm connected to. So this is what people are doing. And so listen to this. This is this is one of the things that um, a, a Spanish uh, colonizer, Martin Fernandez de Enciso, is going to say. He says, quote as he's en- engaging the indigenous, the Spanish king might very justly send me to require those idolatrous Indians to hand over their land to him for it was given him by the Pope. Remember I was talking about how land and a power and authority is yeah. going to work. If the Indians would not do this, he might justly wage war against them, kill and enslave those captured in war precisely as Joshua treated the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. So here's something else you got to see, whether it's, going to be british the spanish the portuguese they're going to start seeing themselves not only as 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 racialized whites but they're like oh christianity is bound up with whiteness christianity is bound up with being european Mm -hmm. and we're going to see ourselves as those that are conquering like joshua conquered the canaanites so time and again indigenous peoples are presented as these heinous idolatrous canaanites that if they don't immediately repent when you read something like the the recueramento, mm-hmm. <laughs> which which you got people reading while they're actually like running across the hill trying to trying to kill somebody with a sword, yeah. it's like, well, if you quickly repent, then da. da, 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 da. Right. That's da this is it's 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 egregious stuff. Mm-hmm. But they're thinking, okay, no, nope, now we can capture you. This this has all been given to us by the Pope through the monarch, and we're doing God's good work like Joshua was doing God's good work. And you mm-hmm. find the same kind of rhetoric from the Puritans. When they're talking about being a city on the hill, yeah. going into the wilderness. Right? So I, I want to highlight this. People have to see there are so many commonalities b- between these European empires. Even though they're going to be war with themselves, even though they're all fighting to get, the, to, to get land and to get, the, get resources, and they want to have sugar plantations and tobacco plantations and all this sort of stuff. There are a lot of theological ideas in common. So, so notice, one of the things I've, I've already shown then is white supremacy is a distinctively Christian construction and heresy. So, too, the doctrine of discovery that gets tied into the ability not to just take, if you are a Christian and they're seen as not, take their lands. Mm-hmm. That's also a distinctively Christian construction, the heresy. So part of the big problem that I'm seeing in seminaries is we don't talk about these portions of, of church history. No. Like mm-hmm. There's going to be this jumping from Augustine into the Reformation. A certain understanding about Martin Luther, maybe we talk about how, well, it seems he actually is pretty anti-Semitic at different points, but well, okay, we'll keep moving on. But they don't (laughs) say, for example, that Calvin, when he's in Geneva, is connected to groups that are sending missionaries down to Brazil, to indigenous peoples. And those missionaries are connected to the broader imperial project in Brazil Mm -hmm. to establish sugar sugar plantations. Mm -hmm. And I want to highlight this. Notice one of the things that's going on. As these empires of Europe are expanding, they want land. Yep. And they want the resources on the land, so you Mm -hmm. can't you can't understand racialization until you see that this is so much about the spreading of peoples to grab resources. And I say this because in 1512 you get the very first ever legal racial category. It's going to separate those that are deemed as white, the Spanish, Mm -hmm. from another group. And in and in the United States, we're not expecting this because we so often operate in a black white binary. The laws of Burgos in 1512 establish the legal category Indian. The legal category Indian. And there, so you get certain rights and privileges that go to the Spanish that are seen as white and Christian. And then it's a subordination of this other race, the Indians. And in the beginning, it's the indigenous that are getting enslaved. It's the Indios, they're going to get enslaved. But as their populations are being so oppressed, so exploited, they're dying out from, from, from disease. Of course, Indigenous people are still here. It's not like they just fully died out. This is another myth we got to get rid of. But one of the things that you find is people like uh, Bartolome de las Casas going, whoa, 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 hold on. This is heinous treatment. Let's take these African slaves that we acquired through that just warfare against the Muslims and let's have them work here. This is going to bring over the Africans. So you get African slaves coming initially to places like Hispaniola in the early 16th century, connected to Spain. But of course, the Dutch is going to be connected to this. The French are going to be connected to this. The British are eventually going to be connected to this. I want to say this too. And Now, now I'm going to be pivoting more towards, uh, uh, more towards Britain, and then we're going to go into the U.S. So I, one of the things that's gone on is initially, Britain's got a relationship um, with the Pope so that they can go ahead and try to do some excursions in the quote-unquote new world, which is not new. The initial efforts fail. But one of the things you're getting with the Reformation is a breaking and a changing of the power structure that I said, especially when you're getting with the English. Because mm-hmm. they're like, oh, no, no, no. Henry, King Henry is the head of the Church of England, not the Pope. Now, notice how, importantly, how important of a shift this was, because I was saying it goes from the Pope to the kings. Mm-hmm. You say, no, 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 no. no. Henry is, 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 in fact, the, is, is the head of the church. And then any of you know, whoever is going to be in power, the Henry's children, is going to be the head. Well, this means what you're going to get is this this idea that the monarch is the head of the church and also now the one by the monarch's own power, king or the queen, that's going to be establishing groups that will have the power and authority of the monarch to go and do what are known as crown charters. So you can go into the new world and you can claim this place as a Christian using the doctrine of discovery because I, the, the head of the church and the one with all the civic power, have affirmed that this is what you can go on to do. And so, for example, what are now states, but were initially colonies like Virginia and Georgia, they had land charters to supposedly claim all the land that they got. Like, once you get there, there are no Christians. You just keep on going west, and you Mm -hmm. can claim all of it, and it's all yours. Yeah. Of course, that also means it's all Britain's. Now, I need to say one more thing before we get into some of the nuts and bolts of that. During the Elizabethan period, You didn't yet, you still don't really have the English doing a lot of colonizing with any success in what we now call North America. But they do practice conquest, and they do it against the Irish. And a lot of that rhetoric about the pagans and the barbarians, as you saw from the crusade period, Mm -hmm. gets used against not now only the indigenous, but the Irish. It's going to be important because the Irish, when they're first coming to the United States, are actually going to typically be racialized as black yep. because, of this, because of the antagonism between uh, England and Ireland. But this is important to see because they're going to hone, the English hone their conquering abilities against the Irish, and then they bring those with them to what we now call the United States. Now, you get a bunch of, of wars. At the end of the, what's known as the French and Indian War, which shows you that we're now operating out of this distinctly British idea – you get King George III saying, "Okay, we got to have a proclamation." So it's the Proclamation of 1763. King George says, "Okay, we 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 need to make it so that nobody going, nobody, none of my, um, nobody under my power as the King of England is going to go west of this this line in the Appalachians. Nope, all that is just going to be indigenous lands." Now wait a second. Remember what I told you about the Crown Charters? It was like once you land, you can just keep on going. All that could be yours. And here's something that's key founders of the U.S., many of them were land surveyors. George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson. In fact, Thomas Jefferson's dad, land surveyor. And they got lots of money into having places like Ohio, Indiana, Illinois. So there were all sorts of dirty deals going on, and they're like, whoa, 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 the king can't tell us that we can't own that land. So one of the primary, not exclusive, but one of the primary reasons for the U.S. revolution is you have these people who have slaves, who want to expand and gain a tremendous amount of wealth, and they're looking at all this fertile land. They're going, mm-hmm. you can't stop us. We have charters, yes. <laughs> and and their ideas about white superiority, right, and their ideas about Christian theology that are, that are linked in this way. You can't, you don't get to stop us. We're going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: This episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast is brought to you in part by Respero. Respero is a nonprofit organization that trains people to become lay counselors. To participate, you join a cohort led by Respero founder Joe Bishop and participate in two courses Respero seeks to bring hope and healing to a broken people through life-giving conversations if you're interested check out the first course which is called understanding people on the Respero website and if becoming a counselor isn't for you consider the courses and lessons that Respero offers courses like understanding yourself will help you dive deep and understand what makes you tick And then other lessons like codependency, grief, anxiety, and spiritual abuse can help provide guidance and solutions for tricky situations. If you're interested in learning more about how to be a Respero counselor or taking a course, check out the website at Respero.org. That's R-E-S-P-E-R-O.org. You can also find them on social media at Respero Restoring Hope. We hope that you'll join with Respero in its mission to bring healing conversations and hope to local communities across the country.
3: These are good people.
2: They are good people. Yep. And they are sponsoring our podcast for a few episodes, and so we're grateful for that as well. We've peeped around partner a, with them,
3: a few of their courses, we'll taking a look. Mm-hmm. Taking a look at the courses, yeah. We've peeped the courses and their qualities. Mm-hmm. This is great stuff. And a lot of what they do aligns very closely with what Gravity's doing. So yes. if you're... If what we do on this podcast, maybe you've been through the Gravity Leadership Academy, if that appeals to you as well, check them out.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Gravity Leadership Academy, our 10-month online training intensive for Christian leaders who want to root their life and leadership in God's love and bring lasting transformation to their culture. In Gravity Leadership Academy, you'll learn the real-life practicalities of how to notice God's presence and activity in and around you so you can participate more fully in God's life and mission and open up space for those around you to do so, too. We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com academy. Now,
4: I want you to see at this point, there are new developments too. Because in 1642, we get the very first ever writing about a state in the way that we would think about states. This comes from Thomas Hobbes' book, The Key Way, so on on, on citizens. And Thomas Hobbes is the first person to ever talk about a state in the way that we might now today think about nation states. And notice it's an effort to further, as it were, remove certain distinctively religious authorities. From the broader, what he's going to call political civic mechanisms.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: So one of the things that's also happening is you're getting uh, you're getting secularized versions of what was initially these Christian ideas about yes. the spread of white supremacy, the spread of uh, of imperial power. I- I'm noting this because I want us to look at the Declaration for a second. So the Declaration is a theological document, uh, the Declaration of Independence. It is going to talk about having uh, uh, rights. From, from, from God, they're all created equal, et cetera, et cetera. But wait a second. It's actually also a racist and white supremacist document. Hmm. And let me explain what I mean. And let me give you two quotations from the declaration. So one of the reasons, supposedly, that, that these colonies now have a justified reason to, to revolt against the king is that the king, quote, has excited domestic insurrections among us. Well, what's this a reference to? Hmm. Slave revolts. Slave revolts. You see, once once African slaves are brought into what we're now thinking about the, the English colonial project in the in North America, not in the Caribbean, because, of course, England has colonies all over the, the, the Caribbean, too. Once this is underway, there are all sorts of questions about, well, how are racialized white people going to be re- relating to racialized black people? And you have you have laws saying, for example, um, you can't teach black people. To, you can't teach African slaves to read. So, in fact, even if they're free, can't read. No, nope, we're not going to baptize any African slaves because there is a fear that if we baptize them, now they're going to be free in every sense. Then you get laws that say, no, 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 you know what? Okay, you can baptize them, but that doesn't grant them manumission. So it doesn't grant them political freedom. So notice there's this connection of whiteness to political power, to political ability, and the suppressing of what's seen as blackness. And of course, they're presented as barbarous, barren people that don't really know anything. They're savages. Aren't they so blessed to have us as, as their masters? And you're going to have people like Cotton Mather and at times Jonathan Edwards, etc. They're championing some of these ideas. So I'm noting this because laws during the colonial period are working to establish a racial hierarchy, modes of racial oppression, modes of racial exploitation, and especially after Bacon's Rebellion, where you had poor whites working with black slaves mm-hmm. uh, and, and and the landed gentry are like oh no <laughs> we cannot have that because they greatly outnumber us so mm-hmm. you get this emphasis on oh you're white and they're black and they're bad so you get you just get a little bit of you get a little bit of shine because you're white you're not like them they're at the bottom again laws are working to maintain that so one of the reasons you're going to get in the declaration this mention of your exciting domestic insurrections is to continue to say, like, you're, you're getting these black people riled up. Isn't that terrible? How dare you do that, King? But here's another one. Not only that, but remember I told you about the, the proclamation of 1763? Nope, you don't get to have all those lands. Mm-hmm. Washington, Jefferson, Franklin. Well, now they're upset. And listen to this in the Declaration. Uh, quote, now we're talking about indigenous peoples. To bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. So these poor white settlers are suffering under this barbarous, savage, lawless group, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what's so striking about this, by the way, is that when the founders are at at their constitutional convention, guess what? They routinely draw upon Iroquois teachings about confederacies (laughs) because they're like, wow, the the indigenous have some amazing political structures. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But, But do you see any of that here? No, 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 right? This is organized forgetting. You don't say anything about the greatness of the, of the Iroquois, for example, and how you've been learning from them the ways in which you could have confederacies that would actually operate with some success. No, you just say that they're lawless, they're barbarous, they're barren, etc. Now let's say hmm. post post-revolution, what do we have? And here's what I want to make sure you see. The founders intentionally establish a pigmentocracy, a government formed by white people. Let me give you a quotation from Thomas Jefferson to a minister of Britain asking. How are you going to relate to the indigenous peoples? Direct quotation: He says, "We consider it as established by the usage of different nations into a kind of the law of nations for America." So he's talking about the doctrine of discovery. So it's like, yeah, no, we see this is established. Ready? That a white nation settling down and declaring that such and such are their limits makes an invasion of those by any other white nation an act of war. Now just pause. He's saying. The United States is a white nation, just like all these European countries are white nations. You see, they're writing to each other. They're presuming, oh, yeah, you know, you, know that we, you know that we made a pigmentocracy. You know that we're a white empire. You know that we're a white republic. You know that we're a white nation. But mm-hmm. then he says, but gives no right of soil against the native possessors, which means the indigenous peoples, though they've been living here, because of the Doctrine of Discovery, they actually have no ultimate sovereignty and authority over their own lands. Nope. Mm-hmm. Now, here enters in something I want you to see. CRT scholar Kenneth Noon. Says the following Law organizes white society, then it helps maintain that society through both physical and ideological coercion. So, law organizes white society, then it helps maintain that society through both physical and ideological coercion. So, if Jefferson and the founders are saying we're making a white nation, one of the things we should expect is that they're going to pass laws to protect and promote the white nation. And mm-hmm. lo and behold, that's what we find. So <laughs> brothers, hold on with me. I'm going to give us, we're, we're, mm-hmm. we're moving towards 1955, but, but I want to take some steps for those who just don't know some of this stuff. So so think about the constitution. Does it grant citizenship to any indigenous peoples? No. In fact, the only mm-hmm. clause in the constitution about indigenous peoples is how Congress will have the power to oversee commerce with indigenous peoples. Right. So indigenous peoples, no, no, no citizenship. Right. Indigenous peoples do not get, citizenship, U.S. citizenship, until 1924. They still don't have a guaranteed right to vote until 1957.
1: Wow.
4: Because between 24 and 57, the federal government allows states to determine if indigenous peoples get to vote. Look at the complete lack of power, political power. It's all intentional. Mm -hmm. Nope, you're not going to have any political power. But notice who else is not supposed to have any political power. Those that are racialized as black. So so think about this. We get the 3 we get the three-fist clause. We're going to get the fugitive slave clause. We're going to get the slave trade clause. It says, okay, another, uh, you know, yep. yes, the slave trade, the transatlantic thing is going to die out. But don't worry, <laughs> this is the thought, because we have all our own plantations and we're going to be making slaves. This is one of the reasons why now we've got to think what's known as intersectionally. Think about the connection between gender and race. Guess yes. What, what, yes. what states like, and, and colonies, but also states like Virginia do. They say, Slavery follows the maternal line, so the yes. mother's line, not the paternal line. Why? So that you can make black women into slave factories. Yes. Yep. So that they so that the white slave master can have sexual relations with these people and just keep on having slaves. Yes. So that gets into that perpetual servitude. Now it's now it's it's racialized and, and laws are protecting this. Yes. I want to give you something else though. The very first piece of immigration legislation. That the United States Congress passes, and that the President goes shh, shh, stamp. That's right. Is what's known as the 1917, ni- sorry, the 1790s Naturalization Act, which declares that only white persons of good character living in the United States for two years can become citizens. Hmm. Only white people. Yeah. Now, notice this is something it doesn't explain. Who counts as white? Yeah. We have no explanation. But but remember when Jefferson's writing to the British, like, oh yeah, we're a white nation, you're a white nation, and no white nation better come and step on us, or that's an act of war. Right. and notice how the indigenous are seen as non-white right same thing with the blacks oh, you're not white so one of the key questions going to come up is well who's going to count as white and who's not mm-hmm. but remember I said I've said many times the u.s is seen as a white empire historians uh, 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 of the u.s largely especially if the race colors were gray of course it is mm-hmm. because people like Jefferson Washington Franklin as I told you they had their eyes on lands out in the Ohio's and Illinois areas and, and uh, in Illinois area. and they're like well oh, we're going to just keep on going One of the reasons you're going to get the Louisiana Purchase, you're going to get the Monroe Doctrine. It's like, oh, yeah, all the Caribbean, Central America, Mexico. Let's get after that. Mm -hmm. Now, let me unpack how some of that works. All of these land grabs are going to get connected to the idea about the the Doctrine of Discovery. So in in 1823, there's a case that goes before the Supreme Court. Chief Justice John Marshall, who's a slaveholder at the end of his life, I believe he has over 150 slaves, uh, who maintains white supremacy. He has before him no indigenous peoples, but but two racialized white people saying, well, one of us bought lands from the Indians and one of us bought lands from a group that's connected to the government. So we want to know who actually owns the land. And Chief Justice General Marshall ends up saying, well, given the doctrine of discovery, which the United States endorses, indigenous peoples don't have land sovereignty. So you who bought the land from the indigenous doesn't really count. It's this person who bought it from the government. Now Notice how that's working then. Well, if that's the case, if indigenous peoples don't really have any power over their lands, you can expect we're going to be seeing the U.S. go west, 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 west. Now, George Washington anticipates this. And in fact, four days after the treaty that ends the the U.S. uh, Revolutionary War uh, is signed, George Washington starts sending – he sends a letter and says, this is what you need to do. Don't engage in warfare against the indigenous. That's going to be terrible. And, and, And Washington had been what's known as an Indian fighter for a long time. He said, don't do that. Let's just, we'll set up a racial boundary. Re- the non-white indigenous that live over there, white people live over here, and then we're just going to keep encroaching over there. Because he had this idea. We're superior, they're inferior. They're going to die out. So why why have all the bloodshed? Why have all the chaos? No, we're just going to, we'll get into treaties and we'll buy it and then poof. Well, after Johnson versus McIntosh, you get what's known as the Removal Era. So in 1830, you get what's known as the Removal Act. It says, all these indigenous groups in the South out you go. You're going across the Mississippi. And here's a key question to ask. Why would we have these forms of, of genocidal migration? Pass by law. Here's one of the main reasons. The soil in places like Virginia is getting beat to death because of tobacco plantations. But there's going to be a chance to plant all sorts of things in what is clearly luxurious land because these 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 white settlers are looking at these indigenous people going, oh my goodness, look at all the stuff you're growing. This is amazing. So they want the land. And the United States through things like the Three-Fifths Compromise, you see, it's actually set up to be what's known as plantocracy. It's a government for plantations. It's a tocracy mm. It's a government for slavery. Mm. And it's like, well, we need expansion because this is one of the main, not the only, but one of the main modes of our economy. Yeah. So- Indigenous people who don't have any land rights, out you're going to go. And one of the main people, of course, is behind this, is President Andrew, Johnson, is President Andrew Jackson. Oh, by the way, President Trump just, just loved so much he had a, a portrait of him in, the Oval, mm-hmm. in the Oval Office. It's like, talk about being racist. Andrew Jackson's one of the most genocidal figures white supremacists the, the world has ever seen. <laughs> and Trump's mm-hmm. like, that's my boy, I'm going to be like him. <laughs> it's like, oh my <laughs> goodness. For those of us that know some history, like, no, oh, this is bad. Yeah. We're not surprised <laughs> that, that, that Trump is, is, is trading in all the forms of racism. Yes, but I want to read you this powerful, powerful quotation that comes um, in a case called Worcester versus Georgia. So in Georgia, there are all sorts of questions about how Georgia does or does not, as a state, relate to the indigenous groups. And uh, there's Cherokee Nation versus versus Georgia, that's 1831. Here comes another one, Wor- Worcester, in 1832. Chief Justice John Marshall again. So those, those, those previous two, that's part of what's known as the Marshall trilogy. This is the third, and this sets the t- this sets the bar for all subsequent I- Indian law. This is, what, this is what Chief Justice Marshall says. I'm directly quoting. Power, war, conquest give rights. Power, war, conquest give rights. Which, after possession, are conceded by the world. And which can never be converted, sorry, controverted by those on whom they descend. You'd think you were reading Foucault. Mm -hmm. power, conquest, war, determine rights. So -hmm. one of the reasons CRT scholars are talking about power dynamics is because the Supreme Court justices do. Mm -hmm. And of course they do, because what is a discussion about whose land can be dispossessed, who
3: can be enslaved, if not a discussion of power and authority and of law? Nathan, that's a good point. That's a great point. And I wonder if we don't pause here because we're getting right onto the cusp of the Civil War and maybe pick this up next time. But here's here's the... uh, tragic irony is that you hear a lot of uh criticisms of crt and of people who talk about systemic racism that uh, you see everything in terms of power and you're just playing a race card well the issue is uh we created the race card (laughs) like we invented it uh we invented the power thing like you just named Mm -hmm. and and so it's like it's fine as long as it's invisible and we're using it to our benefit but as soon as the Mm -hmm. people who are being uh who are being hurt by it? Mention it, then we cry foul, and then you want to you want to see race and everything, um, mm-hmm. and so like this this historical tracing this historical development of the invention or creation of of what it means to be white, seeing the world with a white gaze, if you will, mm-hmm. and, and uh, arranging other people's bodies and ethnicities on some sort of racialized hierarchy. Uh, the, understanding the history of this helps, I think, answer. Because one of the common pushbacks I hear when I talk about, hey, whiteness was invented, it was created for for a purpose to justify and legitimize the taking of lands and the selling of bodies and basically the making of money, I mean, right? So it's serving mammon. Whiteness serves mammon. Yep. Um, Is, well, the Bible mentions every tribe, tongue, and nation. The Bible sees all kinds of ethnicities. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so uh, whiteness wasn't invented because the Bible talks about race. So maybe as a way of transitioning from the historical narrative to the end of our podcast and setting us up for next time, how do you answer that pushback or that um, rejoinder to this way of understanding American history?
4: Yeah. So let me read you a quotation from Nell Irving Painter's book, The History of White People. The history of White People. This is chapter one. <laughs> this is chapter <laughs> one. We're there quote, white, end quote, people in antiquity. Certainly some assume so, as though categories we use today could be read backwards over the millennia. People think light skin, sorry, people with light skin certainly existed well before our own times. But did anyone think they were, quote, white, close quote, or that their character related to their color? This is the question she's asking. Her answer, no. (laughs) For neither the idea of race nor the idea of white people had been invented. And people's skin color did not carry useful meaning. This is the consensus view of race scholars. Hmm. Whiteness is a legal, political, and social construction that's bound up with European colonialism and imperialism. It doesn't exist before that. Mm-hmm. That's yes. why I went back to Azawada in 1444. And this is why, remember, that, that the whole where a white nation says Thomas Jefferson... The Naturalization Act of 1790, only white people. Well, here comes the key question. If whiteness is a legal, political, social construct, you're going to have to ask, well, who counts as white? And mm. you're going to get a range of crazy answers yeah. because it doesn't track any biological permanent thing. So I tell my students this there is no equivalent for race to something like the atomic number in the periodic table, yeah. there's no genetic. <laughs> set of nucleotides that makes it so you're white, so you're black, so you're Latino, Latina, so that you're Asian, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. No, no, no. These are social, legal, and political constructions. Remember, Indian is a legal category that gets constructed. So rather than paying attention to all these different tribes, all these different groups, like, y'all are Indians. Rather than paying attention to all these different racialized black communities, all y'all are black. Rather than paying attention to all these different Latino, Latina communities, all y'all Latinos are Latinos and Latinas. Mm-hmm. All these different Asian communities, all y'all are just Asian. So I, I'm saying this because. One of the most unfortunate things that's happened is people have not paid attention to the unique history of the construction of race and the practices of racialization and how those get suffused into the world. And so they project back onto the biblical text categories that don't exist. That's right. It's a a tremendous problem. And and I'll say this. If you read, I'll give you two scholars that are are theologians that that, that support what I'm saying. Willie James Jennings talks about this Mm -hmm. in The Christian Imagination. Mm Mm-hmm. J. Cameron Carter and race, a theological account. Same thing. Hmm. Now, I think for most of your audience, you're probably going to find Jennings more accessible than, than Carter. Yeah. Carter's writing, frankly, for folks like me. who <laughs> have, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you, you, you're just ready to wade through a whole lot of uh, dense detail. Yeah. But, but, but both of them are like, oh, no, of course, race is not a biblical category. Yeah. But Here's what I want to say. Let, I'll, I'll conclude this because I know we're coming towards a point where we have to end. If, if you get a chance, go to Bible Gateway. And look at various English translations of the Bible. But go back a ways and look at the King James Version and type in the word race. And guess what you're going to find? Every occurrence refers to the act of running. <laughs> Something like run the race with endurance.
3: Yeah.
4: Why? Because the category race doesn't exist. But yeah. now you move into modern or contemporary translations. And guess what you start to find? Words like genos and ethnos translated as race.
3: Brother Nathan.
4: Yeah. Oh, brother. Yeah. I've been on the grind on this stuff. And it's a huge problem. Yeah.
3: Yes, it's a yes.
4: huge problem. And so when you get to you get to Peter, right? And Peter's like, you're a, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, you're a your new race. People are like, you see, the Bible talks about race. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. Can I does mean race like what you're thinking? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not at all. Mm-hmm. But this gets constructed these ways. And then people go to Galatians 3, and they're like, oh, neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, uh, you know, male nor female. I'm like, well, first off, slow your roll. Because I know most of you are really caring about what Paul has to say, for example, in Ephesians. <laughs> And you think, well, here we got some real gender distinctions now, don't we? Mm-hmm. And we even have some distinctions between certain role responsibilities for those that are seen as masters and those that are going to be seen as slaves, et cetera. But one of the yeah. things I want to say is, Paul's not talking about white supremacy. He's not talking about racism because they don't exist yet, which means, yeah. and this is very important, all those claims that Peter's sin is the sin of racism that you're going to hear in sermon after sermon, hmm. they're exegetically false. Yeah. Peter's not a racist. Now, does he have problems with othering practices? Sure. But people have othered folks pretty much since the fall. (laughs) But they didn't other in terms of race because the conceptual resources necessary to see people
3: as race
4: didn't exist. Yes. Yes.
3: Yes. This is, Nathan, this is so helpful. I think there may be people listening who uh, are, are hearing maybe for the first time, or actually it's pieces are falling into place, like that old Plinko yeah. game from Price is Right. That like right. <laughs> whiteness and being white doesn't have an existence outside of a cultural, political, social creation. Correct. And yeah. so this world I live in that's obvious to me isn't reality. It's a construct or a lens that I'm that I'm using that yeah. that I don't have to use. Yeah. Um and so and so next time, I want to get into, we're going to continue the history, right? Because we're not, we're not done. And then we're going to talk about why CRT helps us see the whiteness lens. Yeah? And helps us understand mm-hmm. why, why uh, for instance, the argument, well, if race is just a construct, let's just be colorblind, and that should take care of all the problems we have, right? right? Mm-hmm. Or it helps us understand why the, 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 um, the, the accusation of reverse racism isn't helpful, and what that obscures and misses. So we'll get into that stuff next time. Uh, Ben, you want to take us out? You have a thought or comment (laughs) or closing quip, or you want to pull a book Uh, off your shelf and regale us? I was
2: was actually, uh, I was actually looking at the Christian imagination uh, while you were uh, Mm -hmm. talking there uh, because it reminded me of something that I'd read in there. But, um, uh, I think I think I'll end with this. I think this is this is something I noticed that you that you did, uh, Nathan, throughout our conversation. And it sounds like a habit of language that you've cultivated, mm-hmm. um, where you've talked about being racialized. Yes, like you, you use that word like racialized categories rather mm-hmm. than race categories, right? Yep. And I think I mean I, th- I I would I'd love to hear your explanation for why you do that. But what I noticed it did for me was it further opened me up to this idea that I'm not inherently white. That's not an inherent or biological or something that's essential to me. It's something, it's a story that has been told about me that is present in our culture, right? There's a story that's been told about you. And I think your your story is so interesting and unique because there was all these, the, you got told various stories, right? And you're like, what, the, who yes. the heck am I? That's you right. know, like, I, I, like, I'm a black? or well, I'm not supposed to be black. I don't, you know, like, well, that's <laughs> weird. And so <laughs> yep. it just, hi, I, I, I think it's unique. So so anyway, so I don't know if you want to say anything about that, but I, I yeah. noticed that in the way that you were speaking. And I'm always looking for things like that, like little ways that I can change the way I talk that, that help uh, sort of open people's minds up to the world that I'm trying to like give them or, or op- invite them into rather than just telling them, Hey, there's a different world. You should come into it. Like, are, like saying racialized seems mm-hmm. to be a way to invite people into a different yes. conception of thinking about that. So I don't know if you yes. want to say anything about that. Yeah, so
4: I'll, I'll say several things uh, about this. So if, if race is not biologically essential, it's not biologically real in that sense doesn't mean that it isn't real in other senses. It's a political right. category, it's a social category, it's a legal category. So then we, we ask these questions. Okay, well, if, if, if we haven't always seen people as raced, when did we start racializing them? Yes. When do we undergo the process of seeing peoples, places, languages, hair textures, nose sizes, lip mm-hmm. sizes, Ideas about the size of somebody's genitalia. When do we start racializing those? When do we start seeing those as race? So remember what I talked about before. Certain ideas about who's a threat or not, racialized. Certain Mm -hmm. ideas about sexuality and promiscuity, racialized. So it's not Mm -hmm. just about skin color. Right. So what I'm talking about then is the practice of racialization. So I'm thinking about these things in terms of verbs. So we racialize ourselves. We see ourselves as white, black, brown, red, yellow, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And were racialized by others. Yes. And that part's key because you might some people might say, like, I don't see myself as black. I don't see myself as Latino, Latina. It's like, well, the police might.
2: The teacher might. That might not matter.
4: I I, I wasn't thinking about myself as as a certain kind of Latino when I'm in the sixth grade in my in my English honors class, but my teacher sure was. Yeah. And she had sharp distinctions between nasty Puerto Ricans and Mm -hmm. oh these poor beleaguered Cubans. Interesting. So we yeah. had all sorts of distinctions. She saw Cubans as closer to whiteness. Uh, I can talk more about that much, much later on. Mm-hmm. But this is a, there's a long history about that. Yeah. yeah. So I'm talking about the ways in which we racialize ourselves, the ways in which others yes. racialize us, and we racialize lands, languages, et cetera, et cetera. So yes. one of the most helpful things you can do with it is say, how am I racializing myself and why? How do yeah. I see myself as race? And then here's another question. How are other people racializing me and why? Yes. And why? And, and we have to understand that these are social categories. It's going to lead to social practices. So that, for example, my very first uh, chapel uh, that, that I, I gave a homily for at Wheaton College, this was it was the very first what's known as the unidad uh, group, so it's the Latino Latina group on campus. The very first chapel that, that we did. Um, it ends up that during the the worship service, a student takes a picture of us, makes a racist meme, and and and, and, and uses certain distinctively Latino racist tropes against us, right? Hey, it doesn't matter in that moment how I'm seeing myself.
3: Mm-hmm. This
4: is how this person sees me. This is how this person takes my body, takes a photo of it, takes a photo of me worshiping another Latino and Latinos worshiping, and then makes a racist meme out. Like, this is how these things operate. So, mm. then I, I want to say uh, one one more thing, because this is all very important. You will consistently hear me, too, say the racialized majority and the racialized minority. Why? Mm. Because majority and minority are relative concepts. Mm. Hmm. When I'm down in Puerto Rico, in Puerto Rico, I'm part of the racialized majority mm. in terms of the island. Why? Because I'm Puerto Rican. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm from Puerto Rico. But when I go to South Carolina to visit family, I'm a racialized minority. Why? I'm not part of the racialized majority. That would yeah. be the Anglo's yep. or those we're going to see as racialized uh, as racialized white in the United States. But yeah. I'm going to make those important distinctions because there are various forms of whiteness that go on. You get the Iberian conceptions versus the British conceptions versus the U.S. Ones. So. Yeah. When we're in different zones, we can be part of the majority or the minority. And so sometimes it's, in fact, wow, when you hear ra- those that are racialized in the United States as white, they're deemed mm-hmm. white, seen as white, treated as white, they go, like, they go to a place like Kenya, and they're like, wow, look at all these racialized minorities. And you're like, yeah. oh, no, sister or brother, like, <laughs> you're the racialized minority in terms of this country.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
4: And they're the yeah. majority.
3: Yeah. Yeah. But that's,
4: but but they don't see that because of the racialization practices and patterns to socialize into
3: in the United States. Yes, we got to talk
2: and about how we've been time. taught that that's universal. Oh so anyway, yes, we got to we got to talk about we that. We got to talk about uh, how
3: yeah how power plays into this too, right? Oh yes, uh, because like yes. I, I rode bikes in college. I I did uh, bike races and um, you pace line when you're doing a road bike. So the person in front is sort of they take the they take the wind for you and you kind of ride mm. in their slipstream. But if you're riding by yourself, you don't notice the wind when it's at your back.
4: Yeah. Oh, nice.
3: <laughs> you only notice it when you're riding into it. And I feel mm-hmm. like power is the same way. When power is at your back, yeah. Oh, yeah. you don't see it. You don't notice it. You don't understand how you benefit from it. You just think it.
2: you're a great athlete.
3: You just think, man, I'm, I'm 27 <laughs> miles an hour right now. I'm crushing it. And then you turn around to come home and you're at 16 miles an hour and you feel like you want to die. <laughs>
4: yeah. Yes. You know, may, may I give one example that, that illuminates what you said? I, I know we got to be careful with time. So, yeah. if, if go for wait, it. Go why. for it. This is. I'm, so, I'm. I'm having a great time. So
3: there was. Uh,
4: it's one day. I'm in New Jersey. I'm with fellow Latinos. Uh, so j- just males. So that's why I'm using Latinos. I'm not trying to cover male and female here. But we we go into a what's known as a quickie shop. So it's kind of like a Seven Eleven. At you know, I, I don't know what your particular gas station stores are <laughs> called wherever you live. But that our, this one was called a cookie shop. And so we walk in and immediately the store owner starts berating us and ends up chasing us out of the store and mm. says, I know your people always steal. You're only here to take my stuff. Get out. Mm. Now, I'm devastated. I'm like, I how can I can't even go into a store and buy something without all these all these suspicions, expectations? And I not know the people that I was with. I mean, none of us were shoplifting. Mm-hmm. But I go home, and one of our family practices was to have a dinner conversation, and we would talk about what happened that day. And so I share with my family, and I got it. I gotta be honest now. These conversations were tense because there wasn't robust race consciousness growing up in my family,
2: mm-hmm.
4: um, and there were all sorts of ways in which my dad was playing up and playing down being Puerto Rican and my mm. mom's like I'm white none of my kids are white like I'm white I don't get what's going on and what about my white family and all sorts of things like that were happening.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: So, we're at the dinner table and I go, "It was a crappy day." And my mom says, "Why was it a crappy day?" So, I got chased out of a store by this racist store clerk who told me and these other Latinos that we weren't we can't be in here because he knows that our people are going to steal. My mom gets irate. And my mom's like, what store was this? So I thought mm-hmm. it was the quickie shop on, on Eastern Avenue. And she says, wait, what? I said, yeah, no, it's the quickie shop on Eastern Avenue. Hold on, I might have to get tissue, y'all. Hold on. So she, uh, she's like, it couldn't be. I said, yeah, that was the one, Mom. And she said, I was in there earlier today and they treated me so well. Mm-hmm. And I looked at her and I said, yeah, because you're not a Latino threat, Mom. Mm-hmm. Those are the kind of conversations that happen in these multiracialized families, and yeah. it's painful stuff. Like, I, I had no hate for my mom. I'm not like, well, because you're a white woman, everybody. No, that no, no, like, no, 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 no. The point is like, how are you going to enter into the sufferings of your children? We're getting chased out of the, the store that the same day you're in, and you're getting, you're getting red carpet treatment, yes. because they're seeing you as a white woman that's probably middle upper middle class. I'm like, whoa, we're going to make some sales
3: today, and they see me as a threat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's striking to me, Nathan, that, I mean, the word profit occurred in the papal bull in the 15th century. Yeah. And, and the, your telling of this story in what, the 1990s or the 2000s, yep. Is still about profit. Weep. It's still about money and how it's all tied up. And um, man, we, we have to pause here. We're going to come back next time. We're going to maybe pick up the story with Andrew Jackson Yes. Uh, the worst person ever to appear on a $20 bill. <laughs> and uh, we'll go forward through, uh, through contemporary time, and then, and then getting this picture, we're, gonna, we're going to then, I think, drill down granularly onto how CRT and the tools that are used in that, uh, how they help us see things we can't see otherwise, and name the things that need to be named so we can free ourselves from the hegemony of racialization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sounds good, brothers. Man. Been a joy right. to talk with you. Brother, this yeah. has been wonderful. Thanks for your time, and we'll, we'll chat again soon.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at Catch you next time.